Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, Ryan and Corey here with another episode for you. Extremely excited about our episode today. We have on Paula Pant. She's an author, blogger, real estate investor, and overall financial independence connoisseur. I've been very intrigued and interested in finance and financial independence for the last couple of years. And she's one of the people that I first came across and thought it would be, Corey and I both thought it'd be an amazing guest to have on the show. We we're glad we landed her and that she she came on and she dropped some knowledge on us in a bunch of different avenues, I'd say, from real estate to index fund investing um, and a couple other avenues. But she's a great person. She likes to give back. She has a mantra, you can afford anything, but not everything. And also, specifically, her blog is called affordanything.com. And it's an amazing resource for people to, to look at and, and kind of start studying how they can retire early. Um, yeah, Paula retired in, from financial independence in five years, or I'm sorry, 10 years. So like doing that in 10 years from college, she, she well-traveled, she traveled all over the world, like 50 countries or so that she was talking about. And she is one of the big ones in the FI community. Like she really, really knows her stuff and it's pretty evident in this episode. So I think anyone who's, whether they're just getting started, they're halfway through FI, she's the one that you want to listen to. If you've ever thought of how cool it would be to be able to work from anywhere in the world and sustain a lifestyle that affords you to travel, adventure, and see how different people live on a day-to-day basis, this is the one for you. She's super interesting. We had a blast recording this episode. So without further ado, let's dive in and please welcome Paula Pant. Paula, thank you so much for joining the Weekly Juice. We're very excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you. Uh, we don't, we already kind of gave a brief introduction on who you are, but um, if you could kind of just walk through your story on how you got into financial independence and um, what, I guess, ignited the the fire in you to uh, yeah. try early. Totally. Um, so I, when I was in college, I really wanted to study abroad, but the study abroad programs were way too expensive. It was like 15 grand for a semester. Um, and there was just no way that I could pay that, like not without going into a bunch of debt. Um, and I wasn't going to do that. So I thought about it and I was like, you know, I don't actually want to study. I just want to go abroad. And so my thought was I would graduate, I would work for a couple of years and then I would quit my job and go travel. Um, and so when this all began, that was the extent of what I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about like long-term sustainable financial independence. Like I had no idea that that concept even existed. All I was thinking about was I'm going to graduate. I'm going to cash up work for a few years, cash up, and then quit my job and like go backpacking. Awesome. And, um, and right, like straight out of college, the thing that really bothered me about the idea of the working world, um, I would, I would say the corporate world, but like I was in journalism, so it wasn't technically, I mean, I guess it was sort of technically corporate in that it was corporate owned, but it was, you know, it wasn't like a Dunder Mifflin paper company kind of corporate. It was, right. you know, um, so so it was like the thing that irked me about the W2 working for somebody else world was that you got two weeks of vacation a year, you know, three weeks if you're lucky. And and sometimes when I tell the story, somebody will message me and be like, well, I get four and a half weeks. And I'm like, you're missing the point. The point <laughs> is that you're a grown up, you're an adult, 
And somebody else gets to tell you how much time you can take off of your own job. And like, you know, how are you ever going to uh, go to Tanzania with four weeks, even four weeks of vacation a year? How are you ever going to, to, to see Bulgaria um, with that kind of vacation time? Like you're not. And so, uh, so I, I, from the beginning, just objected to that kind of setup, you know, like I understood the importance of getting results, but we live in the internet age. If I can bring my laptop with me and get results from anywhere on the planet, then, then why should I be beholden to what some HR director thinks that I should do? Did you have that? I'm curious if you had that mindset, like, like right out of college, or was there like a light bulb scenario moment where you were like, "Oh, like I, I can't do this." Oh, it was during college. Okay, it was like, it was just straight up during college. I, I, I for me, a big part of the motivation was that I wanted to travel a lot. Like that, that was the number one dream that I had. So I think a lot of people, you know, when they're in school, their their ambitions are maybe to, you know climb the corporate ladder to um, be a C-suite executive. Like for me as a college student, my, my goal was to go see the world. Um, that, that was a thing that I wanted more than anything else. And, and I knew that study abroad was too expensive. And I knew that, um, that going into a situation where I had two weeks of vacation a year was, or three weeks or four weeks was, or, or even six weeks was not going to cut it. Um, it was just not going to be enough time to be able to, uh, you know, there are 200 countries in this world. Um, yeah. And, and I wanted the time to be able to see them. So you have this idea in your mind of what you want to do with your life and, and what you want to see and mm-hmm. adventures you want to take. That's in your head, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people are in the same spot right now. Yeah. What was your plan of attack from there? So my thinking was, it might, okay, my plan of attack was, at that time was kind of twofold. So there was the long-term plan, which was long-term big picture. I wanted to be an international journalist. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Um, that was like down the road. But then immediate term, like short term, I wanted to just work for a couple of years, quit my, like cash up, quit my job. Because when I graduated from college, I had basically nothing. I was fortunate in that I didn't have student loans. Um, but I also didn't have any money. So I was out of college. I was basically starting at zero. Um, And so I took an internship at the local newspaper. Um, It was, it started off as a unpaid internship two days a week. So I I worked seven days a week, five days a week. I was waitressing and gardening and doing all kinds of odd jobs. Um, I was the the world's shittiest worker at a landscape company. (laughs) Like I could like barely lift a 20 pound bag. I, I, I was a shitty like, server, so I know exactly how you feel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I did that five days a week and interned two days a week. And I did that for the summer out of, out of college. And then uh, once, once the summer ended, they offered me a paid internship, uh, making $200 a week, still working two days a week. So I made like a hundred bucks a day. Um, so I did that throughout the fall. And then at the end of that fall, they offered me a full-time job. And so I started uh, beginning of 2006, end of 2005, beginning of 2006. That was when I officially started the first and as it turns out, only job that I've ever had working for anybody else. Um, and I was a newspaper reporter. Uh, my starting salary was 21000 a year. Uh, and 
I quit that job two and a half years later in 2008, mid 2008. And at that time, my ending salary was 31,000 a year. So that's the most I've ever made working for somebody else. Uh, But during that time, I basically, I lived on the money that I was making at the newspaper. And then I freelanced during the evenings and weekends. And all of that freelance money that I was making um, after taxes, I just put into a savings account. And so on average, that ended up being about 800 bucks a month after taxes, which in two and a half years, it added up to about 25 grand. I also had a car uh, that was worth $3,000. So that selling the car and getting three grand out of that also contributed to that $25,000 chunk. So what's cool about your story is that you're not talking about anything that's crazy out of the, out of this world, like, you know, investing in some crazy fund, like you just literally made, and what a lot of people would call probably not a lot of money. Right. And then Mm -hmm. you saved the freelancing money and you all of a sudden have $25,000 in, in two years. That's a lot of money for somebody who's at the age that you were. So Mm -hmm. with that being said, what did you do next? I know you were talking about, you were like, you had this itch to travel. You took that 25 grand and you, you went where? I don't want to spoil it. (laughs) (laughs) So I very, very briefly went to Europe. I couldn't stay there long because Europe has such a high cost of living. So I spent, I think I was there for about six weeks or so. I flew there with airline miles um, that I'd, that I'd gotten from like using a credit card. And I was there with my friend, Kim we tried to ride our bikes around Spain. That did not work out. Her bike, we lasted for like a week and a half, maybe two weeks. And then her bike got stolen um, because we were too cheap to pay for like 20 bucks a night for a hostel. So we were sleeping outdoors. So we were like sleeping on the beach. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. for like a couple nights. <laughs> yeah, two, that's crazy. And when you say bike, are you talking like moped or like a bicycle? Bicycle, like a wow. bicycle. <laughs> cool. So Yeah. Um, yeah, her bicycle got stolen. And so then we threw my bicycle like underneath a bus, like, I mean, in the storage compartment under a bus, um, and took a bus back up to Madrid where we had a friend who, uh, lived there. So then we stayed rent free with him for like maybe two more weeks or so. And then after that, she wanted to try this program that was like worldwide workers on organic farms where you can live for free in exchange for like working for these organic farms. We did that for like a hot minute, but uh, it ended up being basically like trading a day of hard labor in exchange for sleeping in a camper and getting a sandwich. So it ended up being like a pretty, pretty rough. So then eventually like that, that consumed most of the trip. And then at the end of it, we, we were like, okay, screw this. Let's just go like putz around Europe for a little bit. So we went to Portugal, we went to Italy Um, and then it was like time to leave. So that was the first trip. I flew back to the U S, um, and stayed in the U S for like maybe a month. And then I flew to Egypt on a one-way ticket. And that's when like the real, for me, the real, real trip began. So, um, I spent six weeks in Egypt and from there did the, went to Israel Nepal, India, um, and then did the whole Southeast Asia loop, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, uh, and then 10 months in Australia um, with like a side trip to New Zealand for about three weeks. That's amazing. During this time, I mean, you just checked off like, you know, 
17 or 20, I don't know, a lot <laughs> of the countries that you named you said there's 200 <laughs> countries. So like you checked a lot of those off there and, and $25,000 to save up in two years, like I said, is a pretty cool feat. Did while you were away, is mm-hmm. this when you realized, okay, I don't want to just do this and then come back and go to work. I want to make financial independence more of a lifestyle for me. From uh, I still didn't have any concept of financial independence at the time, but I knew that I wanted to make self-employment uh, a full-time thing for me. So part of that, part of that was because I, you know, I realized that that full-time freelancing was an option, and, and particularly being a newspaper reporter, being a journalist, um, freelancing is is. So kind a little bit more common in the world of journalists than it is in, you know, some other industries. So through being a journalist, like through going to journalism conferences during the two and a half years that I, I worked at a newspaper, you know, I had met freelance journalists, which gave me that proof of concept of like meeting people who were actually doing this full time and who were successful at it. So I knew that I wanted, during, you know, during the time that I was traveling overseas, I knew that I wanted to make full-time freelancing the thing that I do so that that way I would always be location independent. Um, so it, start, it really started with that. It started with the goal of location independence. And, um, and in order to make that happen, I knew that full-time freelancing was going to be volatile. You know, the, you talk to any freelancer and one of their chief complaints is that you know, sometimes you're starving and sometimes you're eating steak. Like they're the good months and the bad months. And um, so I knew that I wanted some type of, I wanted to manage my money in some sort of a way that could like smooth out that income volatility or at least provide a safety net. So that even in the bad months, even if I had a couple months where I wasn't getting any clients or any work, I still had a, something coming in that, you know, you know, so I'd be okay. Mm-hmm. So what was your vehicle that you, aside from freelancing, to bring that money in and stabilize your income? So it was, really, it was threefold. Um, like, I kind of think of it as a three-legged stool. So partially that vehicle was, in terms of the freelancing, it was diversifying my sources of income. Um, so it was in, in terms of the business that I was building, it was having multiple sources of income. That was part of the safety net. Part of the safety net was putting a bunch of money into, um, investment accounts like 401k and IRA. Yes. But also like taxable brokerage accounts, investment, you know, regular taxable brokerage accounts that I knew, um, I never planned on drawing down on, but it would build me wealth. And in an absolute emergency situation, those accounts would be there. And then the third thing that I did was, and this is after I came back to the US, um, I wanted to get myself down to paying nothing out of pocket for my housing because I figured the, the more I could get my, my personal expenses down, as, you know, down to as cheap as they could possibly be, um, you know, the less risk that I would be carrying. So, um, so I, people like in, with the benefit of hindsight, people these days think of me as a real estate investor, but at the time that I started, my goal was not to invest in real estate. It was just to get my own personal housing costs down to zero. And at the time I didn't know that the word for that was house hacking. 
Like I, I didn't know there was a word for it. I didn't know there was a concept. Um, all I was thinking about was buying something that would let me, buying something that would give me the ability to stash a ton of roommates into it so that I could live for free. And what was your strategy with that then? Did you buy a, mm-hmm. a um, multifamily property or did you buy a, a house with a bunch of rooms? Uh, I bought a multifamily property. So the way that that all started was I was renting, um, I was renting, a, I was living with, there were a total of five roommates. So I was one of the five, one of five people living in a three bedroom apartment. So it was myself and my boyfriend at the time. And then there was another couple and then there was one single person. So there are five of us living in this three bedroom unit. And that three bedroom unit was inside of a triplex. Um, and so that is how we were all living. And so um, I did some bad, like I went on Zillow and I looked up what my landlord had paid for the building and I knew what all of the units were renting for. And I did some back of the envelope math and realized that my landlord was getting a terrible deal. Like he was barely breaking even or maybe even not even breaking even. Um, and so I, I had done that back of the envelope calculation and then I sort of stuck it aside and forgot about it. And months later, I noticed a for sale sign in the yard of the triplex that was across the street. And that place had been on the market for, I think, around somewhere between 16 to 18 months. It's a long um, time. Yeah. It was super long time. It was a short sale. It was on the brink of going into foreclosure. It was a complete piece of junk. It needed t- a ton of work. Um, but so... Uh, so kind of on a lark, like without really knowing how to analyze properties, without having a strategy, um, you know, just kind of doing nothing more than a few really rudimentary back of the envelope calculations, which is not how I recommend anybody do it. But that's, right, right. you know, that's just the honest my story. Um, we, my, my then boyfriend and I offered two, $225,000 on it and um the seller accepted it because his alternative was going into foreclosure. So it was a short sale. Um, the seller took a hundred thousand dollar haircut on it. And, um, we put in a $26,000 down payment and borrowed 200,000. And, uh, when we moved in, we moved, we, we brought all of our roommates over with us. And so we moved into a three bedroom that was populated. At that point, we had four people living in a three bedroom. And then the other two units were occupied by like other random renters. And then um, that, that was how it began. Like it began by just getting our own personal costs, personal housing costs down to zero. We talk about house hacking all the time on this. Mm-hmm. On our, uh, I'm currently house hacking. So, and I love it because I get to live with people that I like my friends, right? So yeah. also subsidize my mortgage. Um, so we talk about taking the number one expense. If you can eliminate that or significantly reduce it, you're already so far ahead of and reaching financial independence that the real estate investing that you did, I'm sure really helped you, but that's like the step one. Yeah. I guess I kind of want to paint the picture for our, our listeners here. How long did it take you from, you know, your trip to Egypt and Mm -hmm. graduating to reach financial independence, just to give people an idea of your journey? Um, So unlike a lot of other people, like there are some people who have like a specific FI number and they have that FI number because they're working at some shitty W2 job that they hate. uh, And they have- dying to get out of it. 
Exactly, exactly. And so they have a number that they want to hit that's typically a multiple of their current living expenses that they figure once they hit that number, then they'll have enough to cover their current expenses and they can, can quit their job. My setup was very different in that for me, like the defin- for me, the definition of reaching FI was, it was a lot more subjective because I, I did the opposite. I quit my job first and then I was like, shit, how am I going to sustain this? You know, like I quit my job with uh, just enough to be able to cover me through a trip, but it, that wasn't a long-term sustainable plan. So it was after I was unemployed that I was like, then trying to figure out how to continue to be unemployed in perpetuity. Right. Um, and so for me, I would, I would say that I hit my FI number when uh, myself and my ex, um, we, like we were to, together at the time, when our combined net worth reached a million dollars, that was probably the time that I was like, okay, I can, I can breathe, like I can relax. You know, I don't have to, be stressed out. I don't have to worry. Like we are officially millionaires. I can chill. <laughs> and how many years did that take you? I'm oh, just curious. Sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was 31 at the time. Okay. So, so from the graduation of college to, so you're talking like re- realistically 10 years, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Possible people, 10 years. <laughs> like that's, that's a hell of a lot better than working 40 and then like being really old when you can enjoy your time in my yeah. opinion. It's interesting. Cause you mentioned having a net worth of a million dollars, but mm-hmm. And you don't have to dive too far into this, but just to kind of paint a picture of like, how much did you have at the ready when you, cause I know you talked about a lot, a lot of long-term investments. I'm just talking like liquid cash where you felt comfortable. Cause I think about this all the time. It's like, how much would mm. I need to just have yeah. on a daily basis to feel good? Not that yeah. I, you know, obviously I, I love looking at the long-term accounts, but if you check those so often, you're like, well, I, I can't even touch them. So what's the point? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I almost always keep an emergency fund of somewhere between like six to 12 months of my current expenses. Um, and once I started working for myself and growing a business, the nature of that emergency fund shifted a little bit. So before I before I had this business, like before I began working for myself, my emergency fund was like, literally, what do I spend? Make sure that I have, you know, a few months worth of that. Now that I have a business, the emergency fund is what does the business spend? And that includes the salary that I pay myself. So now, like right now, my emergency fund, I aim to always have it at between six to 12 months, ideally 12, but sometimes, but it fluctuates within that window. Um, I aim to always have it at between six to 12 months of business expenses and with my salary being included as part of those expenses. Awesome. And so yeah. when you mentioned your business, we, we, we mentioned this in the intro, but just to mm-hmm. dive in for people to learn a little bit more, it's afford any, anything. It's a blog. Also you have a podcast and you're an author. Mm-hmm. In addition, you have the real estate business on the side. I'm sure we're talking mm-hmm. directly about afford anything here. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through, I guess, the inception of that? I guess from the beginning, I know you wanted to start something on your own and have your own, I guess, your own, not nine to five, but your own gig. So say that. Yeah. Say at least. Yeah. Yeah. So when people ask me what I do, like if I need a short like elevator answer, I usually tell them I run a, like a digital media company or a personal finance education company. Um, but really the way that that all started was that uh, I was a freelance writer. I mean, 
I was initially a newspaper reporter and then I quit that and I wanted to be a freelance writer full time. And so when I went into free full-time freelancing, I uh, got, I talked to a couple of other journalists and I got the advice that I needed to pick one niche. Like if I tried to write about anything and everything, I was never going to get work. I needed to pick one topic and specialize in that and develop a reputation as a writer within that topic genre. And so for a while, this is right after I came back from traveling, I didn't know what that topic was going to be. I was like, maybe I could be a wine writer. Um, you know, maybe I could write about, I don't know, whatever. And uh, Are you a wine connoisseur as well. <laughs> uh, I'm a wine drinker. I wouldn't yeah. say that I'm <laughs> yeah, a connoisseur. All that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then somebody gave me the advice. They were like, write about what you love to read about. And as nerdy as this sounds, I've always loved reading about money management. Like even back in high school, I loved reading Money Magazine and Kiplinger. And so I thought, all right, well. I mean, if, if naturally like all the other girls are reading Cosmo and I'm like sitting there with my copy of Money Magazine, that's clearly a sign I should be a personal finance writer. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. So when I came back from traveling, I started, um, started a career as a personal, fi personal finance freelance writer and made my money doing that. Um, and as I was doing that, you know, I, I also started to afford anything at that same time because every freelance writer is just told to have a blog. Um, that's just, uh, you know, in case you're pitching articles to a client and they want to check out some of your writing, but they don't want to like email you and ask you for samples because that's awkward and it's effort. They'd rather just Google you and see what you've done. You know, they, you know, every freelance writer is, is given the advice that they're supposed to have a blog. So I started Afford Anything, um, you know, as part of starting my freelance writing career. And as I got more and more gigs, you know, I was writing for AOL Daily Finance and um, About.com, which is now the budget, and uh, like just a, a whole bunch of different websites. But the most lucrative jobs that I was getting um, weren't media outlets. Um, rather, they were small businesses that needed content for their websites. So they were accounting firms or CFP firms, certified financial planner firms, um, or fintech uh, startups in Silicon Valley that were really, really small, you know, maybe five full-time employees. And they just didn't have the funding to have a full-time in-house content person, but they needed that content marketing. So those were my most lucrative gigs. And, and once I realized that, I leaned harder into it. And then I realized these small businesses, they don't just need articles contributed to, for their website. They need like someone who can just take charge of the project. They need someone who can say, look, here's your editorial calendar. Here are all of the articles. Here are the topics. Like, I'm just going to manage this. Um, uh, so you're, you have your own business to run. You're an accountant. You're a CFP. You're a fintech startup. You deal with whatever it is that your business does. I will handle all of your content management. Um, and so that was basically how I scaled from being a freelance writer into running a content management and marketing firm. Um, and that was where the real money began. Like that was when I was making solid six figures. I had a team of people working under me. I'd sort of progressed from being a writer to being a manager of writers. Um, and, and so a lot of the money that I poured into my investments came from that. 
So, um, and so your question was afford anything. So I was doing that and that, that was how I was making my money, but I was still blogging at afford anything. Um, because I don't know, cause, cause I like writing and cause you're supposed to be doing that. Um, and it got to a point where they were both growing and at, at a certain point I just had to choose between the two. Um, and so one of the hardest decisions that I made was killing this six figure business that I had so painstakingly built, killing the content content marketing, content management business, um, you know, it was, it was too small to realistically be able to sell it. So I just had to pull the plug on it and go to the clients and say, Hey, thanks so much for your business, but, um, I'm shutting down my services. You know, I I can refer you to some other companies, but, uh, we're not doing this anymore. Like that was really, really hard to do. Um, and it took me probably a year of, I delayed the decision by probably a year longer than I should have, where I just, you know, sat around being anxious and second guessing myself. It was and your sorry, it was your baby in a way, right? I mean, it's tough. I yeah, that. yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, in hindsight, it was it was like one of the best choices that I ever made because that gave me the time to to go full full force into afford anything. So. Before we get too far into afford anything, can you explain your your mantra? I don't want to give it away, but oh yeah, so the mantra is you can afford anything, but not everything. And so that idea comes from the it, it came from that trip uh, when I started traveling. A lot of my friends were like, "Oh, that's really cool. I would love to travel, but I can't afford it." Like that was the number one comment that I heard. And what was what I thought was nuts about that, and you know, this is not a comment on every individual, but this is specific to my group of friends. Um, like I knew that my friends, all of them were making a lot more than, than I was. And they were also spending a lot more. Like they had apartments with stainless steel appliances. Um, they like went to bars and bought like $14 cocktails. You know, they ordered clothes, like, you know, nice clothes online. Like they were spending what they were making. Um, And, you know, meanwhile, there was me like living in this tiny, tiny little studio apartment, uh, walking most places. But if I had to drive, I had a $400 car. And when I tell people that they're like, you mean 400 a month? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, where are you driving? I gotta know. <laughs> it was a twenty-two-year-old Toyota Corolla. Love it, reliable though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, super reliable, super super reliable. The seatbelt had frayed to the point where it couldn't buckle anymore. It was just threads, and the body had rusted out so much that you could like s- sit inside of it and get snowed on. You had the custom. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> you had a convertible. You didn't even know it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, it was a four-speed manual. For the longest time, I had no idea that you could go up to five speeds. Like the <laughs> First time I ever drove a car, I was like, there's a fifth gear? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a per- perfect mantra for people. I would say people nowadays, regardless of your age, just what's going on in the world, Right. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, we see a lot of people losing their jobs and or trying to hoard as much money as they possibly can because they're not sure how things are going to pan out. And if you can think back, like I can afford anything, but not everything, as long as I put my mind to it and kind of categorize what I want to do and map out a plan, you can do so. Long winded question for you, but Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could shed a little light and advice for what you think people should do 
at the moment in time we are in now with so much uncertainty and um, you know, like we're not sure what's going to happen next in the world. Mm, I would say the biggest thing is to diversify your income sources. Um, And so, you know, real estate rental properties that, that is one of many methods of having a diversified streams of income. Um, You know, some people use dividend investing for that same purpose. Yeah, that it's because that dividend provides another source of income. The fastest way, but also the most time-consuming way uh, to develop that diversified income is through a side hustle. You know, like I, I say, it's the most time-consuming because with something like rental properties, um, you front-load the workload, and then after that, it becomes passive. Whereas with a side hustle, unless you build it to the point where it's scalable. Um, you are trading time for dollars, but you can get the you you can get bigger dollars faster, and then you can then reinvest those dollars either to make that side hustle more scalable or to put that into real estate, rental properties, index funds, any investment of your choice. Cool. We realize that the real estate investing is is front loaded mm-hmm. work. We're, we're currently experiencing a bunch of repairs at one time and on mm. our small portfolio. So and two weeks after buying it. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But we know that we put up these down payments. We invested the time, we invested the money and we know that the, if our numbers are right at the beginning, that it will pan out. So I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment. I think that that um, kind of what you're saying really if I, I don't mean to speak for you, but like mm-hmm. you're having intentionality, right? With your, with where you're putting your money, because you're talking about your friends who just spent their money because they felt like maybe that was what they should do. And they don't know mm-hmm. any different. Right. And it's not yeah. like they're dumb people. They just like, if you do it over a 20, 30 year span, sorry. Um, you don't really get anywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And intentionality is a really good word for it because there's, it's one thing to sit down and make the conscious decision. Like, you know, I think I'm going to spend 95% of my income and, and put the other 5% into a 401k. But, you know, if, if you sit down with a spreadsheet or a pen and paper or, and, and, and come to that decision and feel at peace with it. Okay. Then I, I would never choose that, but I give you props for truly thinking about it. Um, The problem is that a lot of people feel disempowered. Like the notion of I can't afford it is fundamentally a notion of disempowerment. Um, It's that notion of I can't versus I choose not to. And that's one of the primary messages that I'm trying to spread is, is the distinction between can't versus choose. I love that. And I would say you kind of brought me to a question. You almost answered it already, but when you're sitting down and you're, and you're starting out and you're trying to map out a plan of attack for this thing, right? Like mm-hmm. how much should I put in, should I have for an emergency fund? How much should I roll into my 401k per month? How much should I drop into real estate on the side? Do you have any, I know everyone's situation is very different, right? And everybody's a different age. They have different family situations and and hopes and dreams. Do you have a baseline of a recommendation of what you might recommend to someone that is trying to plan out? Maybe they're right out of college. They Mm -hmm. just got their first job and they're trying to map out their future and get out of the rat race as quickly as possible. 10 years, say. 
Like you're talking- <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I would say, a lot of people spend and then they save what's left over. My recommendation is figure out upfront how much money you want to save. And when I say save, I mean anything that improves your net worth. So by savings, that could be paying de- paying off debt, like making additional payments towards the debt above and beyond the minimum monthly payment. Uh, that would be a form of savings, literal savings in a savings account, of course, uh, investments in the stock market, um, investments in anything, putting money towards a down payment, um, putting money towards repairs, like all of that. <laughs> it feels like an expense right now, but I know it'll be worth it when we get- it's an investment, dude. Yeah, I know. I'm a little, I'm a little salty, but it's all good. <laughs> if, if it's any consolation, the way that I think about CapEx is I'm like, this is, I'm front loading the expense. Like, this is cool. I put a, a new roof on it right now. I don't have to pay for that for another 25 years. The guy on your, I guess he's your right, my left, is the voice <laughs> of reason because I- I'm a little bit more emotional with it. And I know that I know that in the back of my head that that's exactly what it is. It's like a hot water heater and a stove and a couple other things that we have to do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, look, we're good for the next 10 years on these things or 12 years or whatever it is. But it just so happened that we bought it three weeks ago and we have to do these. So it's like, you know, I, I said the same thing to him today. He calls me. He's like, dude, I got some bad news. And I'm like, all right, (laughs) lay it on me. And we went through it and he goes, well, first of all, the fire department is on our property. I go, dude, we've been there for three weeks. This is incredible. <laughs> so we just started laughing because what else can you do at, at that point? So we walked through it and the whole, you know, it might end up being about 2,500 bucks to three grand, something like that. And it sucks, Probably right? Probably not even that much. It shouldn't be that much. Yeah. And instead of getting bummed about it, I, I said the same thing. I'm like, dude, right now, Mm-hmm. Let's just get it over with. Let's get the new stove, replace the water heater. It'll be brand new. We should have life expectancy of this many years. Yeah. And when we actually need, when we actually have the money, like in surplus, we're not going to care. Like it's going to be like, ah, that three grand, eh, this one. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that kind of ties into, we, it's, sorry to cut you off there. kind of ties in a little bit what you're saying though, because it's still in a way, in a roundabout way, still adding to our investment, right? Or adding mm-hmm. to our net worth. We're spending money to, hold the value of our property, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's one way where I could buy a $3,000 vacation. And by the way, I want to do those things because that's what makes me happy, but I want to do it with my passive income. So if I'm, if I'm putting money, allocating money into my investments right now, it's kind of pay, paying yourself first in a way. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're essentially moving like, Converting that money from cash into equity in that home, you know, it's still yep. your money. And exactly. It's- <laughs> so when we said we, we, we made the down payment, we're like, we're not losing this money. Like, it's just, it's, it's in the value of our home. So if we go to sell it, we're, we'll get it right back, right? Assuming that it's, mm-hmm. we don't have a 50% decline in the next, whenever, you know, or whenever we decide to sell it, assuming we're smart on when we, if or when we sell. But Yeah. yeah. Just delaying the gratification a little bit. And it's funny because when you have significant others, in the mix, it's harder, you know, you have to get everybody on the same page. And it's interesting to sit for me. I'm like, listen, would I throw up 20 grand now to have it four X at least in the future? Absolutely. Cause I mm-hmm. don't need it right now. It'd be amazing to see it sitting there in the bank account and looking at all the zeros, but I'd much rather add a zero to it down the line. And right. it's, it's hard to convey that to someone else with, that is not on the same exact page as you. I'm, I'm working through it right now with a significant other. So that's why I'm bringing this up. And it's, it's interesting almost like having to sell it. You just look like you pointed to me with a significant other. Did you see that? That's not how this is. <laughs> no, that's no, not how this that's plays not how out. <laughs> but, um, 
it's just it's just very interesting because it, it will come back in the future. It it does hurt a little bit in the beginning where you could buy a new car, you could go on three trips, whatever it could mean, but maybe you have eight trips down the line or can right. work from home and do your own thing. Right, right, exactly, exactly. We a question for you in terms of we talked about like h- how you would tell people to get started and and the intentionality piece. Mm-hmm. Do you have specific uh, numbers in terms of budgeting, because you're able to look at this hindsight now, right? And mm-hmm. you might not even know that you were doing it on your way to five because you were just trying to subsidize your housing. But right. I'm curious as you teach, because that's what you do with afford anything, right? You're, you have mm-hmm. clients and you kind of, um, um, you teach them how to create this life for themselves. Is there a specific number or, um, budgeting tactic that you provide to your clients? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I call it the anti-budget. Um, so it, this is, this is something I created it for myself because a lot of the budgeting tactics that are out there and a lot of the budgeting advice is really granular, you know, and they talk about like track everything, figure out how much money you're spending on housing versus transportation versus food. And you go to these FI blogs and everyone's like, well, I was spending 375 on groceries and I, I reduced it to 345, you know? And I mean- it's The coffee for, thing, right? Like, yeah, exactly. You want to buy a coffee every day, just buy a damn coffee. Like, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. Like $20 a month is like, I don't know. Ex- exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and I'm not a, I'm just not, I'm not a detail-oriented person. Um, and I can't stick with, like that level of granular budgeting, I, I can't do that for the long, for the long haul. Um, it's kind of, to me, that is the, the equivalent of trying to count calories or even like track your macros. Like I, I just, I can't, I can't input every single thing that I eat into some app. Like I can, I can last for like a day doing that, but there's no way I can do that long-term. It'll drive um, me crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And there's some people who are great at that. There's some people who are like, yeah, I've inputted every single like gram of, of fat and protein and carb that I've ever eaten, you know, for the last four years into some tracking program. And I'm like, Psh, dude, if it works time that takes and you're right? trying to get time back and you're just <laughs> wasting more time tracking it. So, so sorry so, to cut you off. <laughs> yeah. My budget and how that applies to me. How do you track everything? Yeah. So the, so that's why I created the anti-budgets for people like me who just, who are never going to track at such a granular level. I was like, look, fundamentally the goal of any budget is to make sure that you're saving enough. And so just divide your money into two buckets. There's, you know, figure out how much you want to save. And I mean, save in the broadest sense of the word possible, save and invest slash pay off debt, figure out how much money you want to save pull that off the top first and foremost, and whatever is left over is just yours to spend. So if you do it like that, you don't have to worry about how much money you're spending on groceries versus restaurants versus transportation. Like somebody asked me the other day, they're like, how much do you, like, what are your monthly expenses? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, but you're in the FI movement. And I'm like, yes, that's true. And I do not know what my monthly expenses are. And frankly, I don't care because what I care about is, am I hitting my savings goals? And as long as I'm doing that, then whatever money is floating around in my account is what I'm spending. 
So do you make it automatic where you pick a chunk of money that you want to save? And so you, so you know, for a fact, it's, you're not Mm -hmm. even seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for me, um, every year I max out my 401, I have a Roth solo 401k. Um, I completely max that out. And since I'm self-employed, I can max it out both on the employee and the employer side. So I max that out entirely. I have a backdoor Roth IRA. I max that out. Um, I have an HSA. I max that out. And then I usually have like one real estate goal per year. Sometimes it's like paying off a property. Um, You know, sometimes it's saving enough to buy some, you know, cheap thing, free and clean. Like uh, I'll pick some real estate goal for that year. And then I make sure that that happens. And once I hit all of those targets, then whatever I've got, I've got. Can you just dive quickly in? Because we haven't talked about it on our show. Mm -hmm. A backdoor um, IRA, was that it? Yeah, backdoor Roth IRA. So basically the way it works is an IRA is an individual retirement. I used to think A stood for account, but I think it technically stands for arrangement. Um, that's oh, like that a, I, like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just <laughs> I for learned sure it was that the other day. Okay. Um, if you if you Google it, most people say account, but technically, I think I think technically it's individual retirement arrangement. Like, I feel like one day I'm gonna win like finance or trivia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an arrangement of funds. I like it. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> um, and so there there are two forms. There's traditional, which means that your money goes in. Uh, pre-tax. So basically the year that you put it in, you don't pay taxes on that income. And as it sits in the account, it grows tax-free. But ultimately when you're in your sixties and you go to take that money out, you pay taxes on everything that you take out. So that tax bill hits you in your sixties. So that's the traditional IRA. The Roth IRA um, is uh, tax exempt, meaning that in the year that you contribute that money, you still pay taxes on that income. So you don't get a tax deduction in the year that you put that money in, but that money grows, you know, over the life of the investment, like that money grows tax-free. And when you're in your sixties and you go to take that money out, none of that, like that's all exempt from taxes. You don't get that tax bill in your sixties. Don't don't you think, and um, for me, it just, uh, I guess it depends on the person, right? Depends on, are you going to be working the rest of your life? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you going to be sitting back and not working? But for us two, mm-hmm. who I think will be working in some form of fashion, we're going to be in a higher tax bracket at that time. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't you invest in that now so that way it's tax-free when you pull it out down the line? Is, is that something you'd recommend? Uh, no. So I would, I would say, especially for you, because like you're young, um, to have like all of the compounding growth and gains over the next 30 years, like that's going to be significantly more than that principal contribution. Like if you take the rule of 72, rule of 72 states that, um, that your money doubles, but essentially if you, if you take the rate of growth, the rate of growth multiplied by the number of years equals 72, like that's, that's the rate of doubling. So if your money is growing at an 8% rate, it will take nine years to double. If your money is growing at a, you know, 7% rate, it'll take about 10.2 years to double. So um, take the, the rate of growth 
the rate of growth multiplied by number of years equals 72. It's like a shorthand for figuring out the rate of doubling, right? So let's, let's just say a set, let's say your money's invested for 30 years at a 7% return, which is a fairly conservative estimate, right? That means it's going to double three times. And like each doubling is going to compound on itself three times. So that initial principle that you put in is going to be a lot, lot less than the total amount that you take out. So to be able to have that total amount be tax-free, we're talking about tax freedom on a much bigger number. That's incredible. So I have this question that it pops in my head all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm glad I have an expert that mm-hmm. I can ask. For yeah. So I think about, I know it's important to, um, I guess, ver- be versatile, right? And have a lot of different things going on. So whether it's a 401k, a Roth IRA, just a regular taxable, um, not taxable, a regular investment account. Mm-hmm. Where you could you pick your own stocks and then uh, real estate, like having everything kind of plugged in different places. Does it make sense to do that versus, or can you explain to me the benefits of doing that versus just putting it in an account that is just essentially stacking all your money in one account and knowing that you're it's going to keep accumulating over time at a specific rate, though the market can go up and down. I think it's crazy to me where I'm like, am I just spreading myself too thin by put, by trying all these different things or should I just go into one and let it stack? Mm, well, so are you talking about different types of accounts or different types of underlying investments? Um, good question. So I'd say, probably different investments. I'd probably say different investments. Yeah. 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 I mean, what I don't see any, I don't see any particular reason to feel like, there, there's no reason to feel a strong need to, to go into a huge diversity of investments. Like if you don't, you know, you can keep it as simple as one like broad market index fund and one uh, equity index fund and one broad market bond fund. You know, you, wouldn't, you would want different types of accounts such as like a 401k, an IRA, an HSA, a taxable brokerage account. If you think, think of it like the accounts are the mug like each account is a different type of, like one is a coffee mug, one is a pint glass, one is a wine glass, like the accounts are the vessels. And then the investment inside it is like the liquid that fills the vessel, right? So you can have a whole bunch of different types of vessels and pour like water into all of them. You know, you can drink water from a coffee mug and a wine glass and a pint glass and um, a fish bowl, you know. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like you can drink water. You can drink that same water out of all of these different vessels. And I think the reason to have the different vessels is because each vessel has a different type of tax treatment. Each vessel has a different type of like set of opportunities and limitations. You know, the HSA um, is money that you can intend to keep for retirement. But if you have a medical emergency, then you can tap it for that. So, um, you know, the, the 401k is going to, those, the assets inside of a 401k are going to be protected from any lawsuits that you're subject to in a way that money that's in a taxable brokerage account will not be. So the legal protections, the tax treatment, the like all of those factors are different based on the vessel um, that your investments are in. But in terms of the liquid that goes inside of it, uh, I see no problem with, with having exactly the same. I mean, if you want to like make it, uber simple and just go into a Vanguard target date retirement fund in every single one of those. I don't see any problem with that. So 
you mentioned the Vanguard target date mm-hmm. retirement. Is that an index fund investing mm-hmm. type? Yeah. So I, we hear that a lot, but no one ever goes into detail. And I don't know how much mm-hmm. detail you can or are willing to go into, but can you yeah. explain just what index funds are and why they're so simple for someone to just, it's, it's very passive. I, yeah, absolutely. So an index fund. All right. So mutual funds, I'll just zoom out for a second. Mutual funds generally are a basket of funds um, with a whole bunch of different companies in them. So instead of buying a single individual stock like Nike or Tesla or Coca-Cola or Amazon, uh, with a mutual fund, you have this big basket with a whole bunch of different underlying companies. An index fund is a type of mutual fund. So the technical name is an index mutual fund, even though nobody calls it that. Um, an An index fund is a type of mutual fund in which rather than having a bunch of people like in a high-rise Manhattan building who wear suits and ties deciding what's going to go inside that fund instead of, and and paying them a a ton of money to do so, instead of that, um, the, the, the holdings inside of an index fund just track um, every single stock that's listed on a given market index. So like the Dow Jones um, is a market index. The NASDAQ is a market index. The, Um, There are all these different market indices and an index fund just tracks that. Uh, One of the more popular ones is what's called the total U.S. stock market index fund, which tracks, as the name implies, literally every single stock that is a a U.S.-based company that is traded publicly. Everything from um, like big, very recognizable uh, companies like Peloton and Zoom down to these tiny, tiny little, what are called small cap companies that you've never heard of. And I can't even cite any examples of them because I've never heard of them either, but they're all in like a a US, total US stock market index fund. Um, There are also international funds, um, you know, and, and even those are broken down into, do you want total international or do you want only developed countries or do you want only like emerging countries, which is just a polite way of saying like, essentially, you know, the, the, the developing world, um, you know, do you want only international funds from Europe? Like there, there's so many ways that you can break that down, but to keep it to, at least initially, if you want to keep it simple, you know, you could do one total U S stock market index fund, one total international index fund and one total bond fund. Um, So that would be how you could get exposure to U.S. stocks, international stocks, and bonds um, in the broadest sense possible without having really to do very much um, granular picking. It's pretty much, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say set it and forget it, but for... For I guess the most basic form of it, it, I would assume it is. Yeah. How do you recommend people? I know you specifically mentioned all these. Do you? How do you recommend them getting started with that? Is it more just hey, go try, do your research, and just open up a a brokerage account and start Mm -hmm. it, or go through a financial advisor or someone that can help guide to hand? Yeah. So what I would say to anyone who wants to get started, so there are three major brokerages that have reputations as. Uh, really good discount brokerages, and they are Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard. Um, you Love can't, Fidelity. Yeah, they're they're all great. Um, Fidelity has an amazing retirement tracker uh, on its website. I have that. I love it. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's got the little car that drives across. <laughs> and it's my he's, a big, he's a big user interface guy. Big. So he likes the car. <laughs> love the car. Big graphic guy. Um, I, I just, I love it for my 401k. So, mm. you know, I'm potentially I'm interested nice. in, I like passive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so any of, I, I would start by opening an account with any of those. And um, I mean, if you want to make it really as simple as possible, uh, the target date retirement funds. I, I have not looked at the target date funds from Schwab or Fidelity, but I know, and you want to check the expense ratio to make sure that you're not paying really high fees or getting ripped off in them. I don't know what they are at, at Schwab or Fidelity, but at Vanguard specifically, that, that's the one that I've checked. And the funds on their target date retirement accounts are super low, um, like among the lowest that anyone will ever find like anywhere in the business. Um, and the composition of each of those funds is, is fairly simple. It's, um, you know, essentially U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, international stocks, international bonds. It's those four asset classes. Paula, something that you said mm-hmm. earlier um, resonated with me, and I think it could resonate with our audience in terms of the simplicity that you're talking about uh, reaching financial independence and how I think a lot of people don't get into FI because they think that it's budgeting every single cent and they don't want to take the time and they don't want to take the energy and it's tiring. And it's like, why do I want to micromanage my life like that? Right. With, it's, and it can be like that if you want to take it to that extreme. But what you're saying with afford anything is that it doesn't really have to be that way. Right. My question for you is why do you think, and maybe there's just not a lot of education about it, but why do you think people are content to work a job they don't like for 40 or 50 years and then, so uh, in air quotes, live your life with 15 or 20 to, to go where you're not as mobile. I mean, why do you think that that is that people just settle, for lack of a better word, for that type of living? I mean, I think there's, there are some people who just think they accept it. Like they think that that's the way it is. That's what's been modeled for them. Um, that's what every adult around them has, has demonstrated. Um, you know, I, I know when I was, like, before I went on my, my big trip, I remember a lot of, of adults saying to me, like, yeah, you, you've got to do that when you're young and you still can. The implication- I hear that all the time. Right? All the time. Like, I hate uh, before, that. before you have 20, what, am I going to have a baseball team of kids and I can't, like, I don't know. It's just like, I, people always say that. It frustrates me. Like, I want to do this my whole life, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there are so many, I mean, so many examples, uh, podcasts and blogs of families that are, that are traveling and living this big, big adventurous life. And, and frankly, even my own family, like we're immigrants. We traveled, I mean, not, most, most people in my family have done a ton of traveling with kids, not really uh, like out of desire, but more out of necessity because, you know, they, they're, they've got three kids, they're all born in Nepal. And then, um, you know, when the kids are like four, two and one, um, you know, one of the parents gets a, a student visa to go to grad school in Australia. So, like that parent there goes, goes the family to Australia, right? Yeah, well, the, typically with a student visa, you can't bring your family over. No. So uh, one parent stays back in Nepal, the other parent goes to Australia, but then you get tourist visas. You know, the people are shuttling back and forth on visitor visas. So there's like a lot of travel, or you meet at like some destination country in between. Like maybe you can't get a visitor visa into Australia. 
Um, but like both parties can mutually meet in Indonesia. And so they'll like meet in Indonesia when like dad's on fall break, you know, and spend, he'll spend four days with his wife and kids there. And then everyone flies home to their respective countries. Like as, as an immigrant family, like this is just normal. Like when you, when you live in Nepal and you, your whole life is, is very much determined by like, where that where can you get a student visa where can you get a work visa what jobs can you get are you able to bring your family who can get a visitor visa to go where like there's a lot of travel that happens with kids because the only way that the family can be together even for limited time periods is through traveling you know um we we just my like two cousins and their kids and their parents actually all just did that. They had, they all like, this is right before coronavirus hit. They all had a, a little family reunion in Bali for exactly that reason. Um, because it was like just the mutual, it wasn't because they wanted to go to Bali. It was because that was just the most practical meeting point for everybody. Um, and so like, I just come from a background where nobody has the impression that travel stops when you have kids. Like if anything, travel increases because that's the only way that your kids are going to be able to see their other family members. So, right. yeah. And, and the world for those types of experiences too. I mean, that that's what I, I mean, I don't have kids, but I want to show my kids all the different cultures and lifestyles and, and experiences across the world. And, you know, it's hard to do that when you have two, two weeks of vacation for the whole year. Right. I think it's, it's, it's really is hard for people too. It's like, you can decide that you want to start living your life, but you're so weighed down or chained to the job. Mm -hmm. like if you have kids or family, but it's your expenses and what you've, the lifestyle that you've created, right. That has kind of, I hate to say it shackled you down. And a lot of people say they hear this episode and they, they are like, wow, Paula knows what she's talking about. I have a fire lit under my butt. I want to, I want to learn more. Can you kind of give us a, where they can start like a starting point on mm. afford anything? Yeah. Like how they can, I guess, grow their knowledge and let these shackles break. If you yeah, will. totally. Good. So I, like I have that, right? a, I have a, I have a free ebook. Um, it's affordanything.com slash escape. And, and that's all about breaking the shackles, getting away from the nine to five, like living a life with, with more freedom. So affordanything.com slash escape totally free. Um, and it, it's a, it's a good starting point. Awesome. And then I know on your blog, you have about mm -hmm. 60,000 plus subscribers to the actual blog itself. And I think yeah. through over 300 articles, you have a lot of articles about financial independence. Yeah. Real estate, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, if you, if you, um, if you're specifically interested in learning about real estate, um, affordanything.com slash VIP list. I send like special insiders only uh, info to that newsletter. So um, all entirely about real estate. You got so, two uh, subscribers, don't worry. They're coming awesome. <laughs> uh, selfishly, awesome, so yeah. I'm curious though, your real estate portfolio, just at a mm -hmm. high level bird's eye view, what is that like, or what's it com um, comprised of at this time? So at this time, I've got five units. So at my, at my peak, I had seven. Now I'm down to five. Yeah, but that's um, really cool to me because we talked with um, Chad Carson. I don't know if, how well mm -hmm. if you know him. or Yeah, yeah. Chad he, and I are friends. Yeah, he, well, he's amazing. He's like one of the people that I looked up to along with you, like looking into financial independence and real estate. And Chad brought it into my head. I'm thinking like I have 
not tenant issues, but just like te- things that happen with tenants. I'm thinking, do I want like 500 tenants or even like a hundred tenants? I'm like, if I pay off five to eight properties, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe a couple with 50, 50, you know, percent leverage or 25% leverage. Let's say I get to the 20 rentals, but I have a bunch that are paid off. Right. Like that almost seems like an easier way. I don't know how yeah. many are, but just to, just to be like, well, this is this is real freedom. I don't even have a mortgage on this. You know? Yeah, four, four out of five of mine are free and clear, and that like, is probably four out of five completely paid off. Yeah, and you don't need twenty. Exactly. Don't. I'm screaming, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> this guy's excited. <laughs> so VIP list, dude. Yeah, I got to go. That's great. The last um, we respect your time. The last segment of our show is called the last drop. We changed the name of it a bunch of times. We're I don't know why, but we've, we settled on the last Be drop. confident with it. It's the last drop now. Yeah, last drop. Last drop. <laughs> I say this on like the last 10 episodes. Um, Pardon me for just a second. I need to plug <laughs> this in. I just, I just got the low battery warning, so I need to plug this laptop oh, in. okay. This is cool. It's like the walkthrough. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Welcome to my crib. Um, this is the last segment right. called the last drop. We're wondering if you could – we know afford anything is a great resource for people, but I'm wondering – if not that, maybe it is that. Maybe you dive into it a little bit. What, what's a resource, a podcast, a blog, an article, a platform, a, uh, a tool that you use to get started, whether that's a budgeting app or just some form that you can leave uh, people with who are saying, I really like this FI journey. Maybe I want to learn more from Paula and what she did. Ooh. Well, okay. So to learn more from me, um, if you prefer reading, then, you know, affordanything.com like slash escape, get the ebook, sign up for the newsletter. If you prefer listening, go to the podcast, just search afford anything podcast on, on, in any podcast player. Uh, what I found is a lot of, a lot of people, some people prefer reading, some people prefer listening. Um, so I would go to, to either one of those. That's to learn from me. But if you want to just overall learn about FI, I would, I mean, there's a whole subculture online. Like we're learning all about it. Yeah, I mean, Money Mustache was my guy to start mm-hmm. out with. Then I, I grew, I guess, leveled up to Paula. Not, uh, <laughs> but just a f- maybe a few of those blogs. Can you give them a shout out? Or just yeah, totally. Somewhere people can go. That yeah, are like let me try this out. Maybe this is more my language. Um, Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist was was like one of the first ones I read. One of my favorites. Um, uh, you know, good. I I does he not put out like weekly episodes anymore i think i noticed was it his no, I, he hasn't put out anything in a while yeah i saw yeah. that one of his most recent ones was like mind-blowing to me i sent it i sent it to you rye um but then i noticed it was like a couple months um but he's been doing it forever so i don't know yeah 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 so i think you hit on enough that was perfect and i'd much rather have people go to your site and and learn a lot because both Corey and i have if you could just give us one last like where is Paul, what are your goals with your business and your life for the next maybe like five, 10 years? I know you've reached financial independence, mm-hmm. but just more personal question. And like, what are you hoping to get out of life? Yeah. Ooh, damn. What am I hoping to get out of life? <laughs> it's tough. So, um, a few goals. So my, my parents started this nonprofit foundation, um, that we, we picked, three kids, three orphaned kids in Kathmandu, Nepal. And, um, and the orphanages in Nepal tend to, a lot of those kids tend to have parents, but the parents can't afford to pay for them. So a lot of them are, are homes for low-income kids. 
Uh, but we wanted to choose kids specifically who who are literally orphans, whose parents died, both parents died. And so back in 2008, we picked, uh, we kids that are under five have a high likelihood of being adopted. So we didn't want to start sponsoring a kid who was under the age of five because we didn't want to like, we didn't want people to hear that they were sponsored by, you know, by an organization and and then not adopt them out. So back in 2008, we picked three kids, all of whom were five years old, all of whom were orphans. And um, my this foundation that my parents started uh, paid for them to go to boarding school in Nepal, um, starting at the age of five. And so that was in 2008. And so now they're all like approaching 18. They're like getting to college age. And I don't have the money. I was just Googling the other day, like, what like cheapest international tuition, like international student tuition in the US. Um, and I found a list of schools that have like international, basically the tuition that they would charge international students, um, including room and board. Like I found a couple of schools that could do it for like 25 grand to 30 grand a year, um, which is too much for all three of the kids. But one, so one, one of those three kids, there's one who more so than, than the others has expressed interest in moving to uh, an English speaking country, a Western country and going to college. And so one of my goals, I don't know if I can make this happen, but one of my goals is to basically pay for this kid to come to the United States and get a, get a college degree. Like, and it's, it would cost between 25 to 30,000 a year. Um, but that's something that I really want to do. That's something that I really want to like, see if I can make it happen. There's no, a lot I'm, of steps in between. Like, um, he, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I love the reason I love that goal so much is because every time we ask this question, people talk about like goals for themselves or their business and, and what they want to accomplish, but the foresight and like the humility, I guess, so to speak, that you have to want to help others is like, that really is where success comes from. Like that, if you have that, like you're kind of unstoppable. So that's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, seriously, because it's, because helping others, like the reason we started the podcast is one to help others, but to, I mean, there's a selfish aspect in it too. I'd be lying to not like to be able to network organically, but the helping others aspect is like, when we see people reach out to us about FI or real estate, I'm like, wow, we're, we're making impact. And mm -hmm. that's similar to what you're talking about in that goal. So I, I love it. Yeah. Well, and it also, it also, I mean, I guess from a selfish perspective, it motivates me to like keep hustling, you know, like if I'm com committing to like spending 30 grand a year after taxes, you know, which is like 50 grand pre-tax, um, I can't just rest on my laurels. Like that's, I, I'm, I guess I'm literally like, I'm, I'm moving the goalpost and taking on additional expenses. I'm, I'm essentially upping my cost of living, you know, right. by like, by being responsible to this kid to like pay if, if, I mean, and I don't know if it's going to happen. Like he has to apply to the schools. He has to get in, he has to get a student visa. Like there's a lot of steps in between, but, um, it's motivating for me too, because it means that I can't just like lay around all day, watch, you know, watching Netflix and eating Cheetos. Like I've got to, I've got to really up my game and, and continue doing big things so that I can continue like doing big things for other people. Great. I don't think you lay around all day anyway, but <laughs> yeah, I do like Cheetos. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. It's an honor. I know Corey talked about Coach Carson as one of his guys in the real estate game. You are my top dog in the financial independence game. So I'm, I'm honored to have you on. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much.